is Open Sourcecraft. I'm Greg Pollack. The world runs on open source, and we speak to the people who shape the world. I'm here with Dirk Edelbutel, and he has a PhD in financial econometrics, which I have to admit I had to look up because I had no idea what econometrics is. And I think it means the economics of using math to describe economic systems. Yeah, there's many metrics, and it basically just means bringing statistics to the um, domain in which you're using it. So econometrics means statistics in economics. Psychometrics is statistics and quantitative metrics in psychology. Biometrics is the same in biology and, and so on. So it basically just means statistical nerdery around economic problems. Okay. And so it shouldn't surprise you to hear he's been a quantitative researcher and an analyst for most of his career. But what's also really interesting about him is that he's a Debian Linux developer and package maintainer for like a lot of that time since graduate school. And he's also gotten involved really early on with the R project, contributing and becoming a foundation board member. So I really got into open source because it solved problems that I had. And there was mm. at the very beginning always this foundation that you could overcome something that's holding you back otherwise because you can open the bonnet, you can look under the hood, and you can make changes. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily you yourself, but it doesn't limit other people. About a year or so into grad school and, and installed um, Linux for the first time in the spring of 94. And I think I used a really small British distribution from Manchester, MCC, Manchester Computing Center. I think it was called MCC Linux because it only came on a handful of floppies, pre-net days. And, uh, mm -hmm. I think not very long after that, I got bored of the limitations because it had fewer things. Anyway, the next thing that I tried was Debian, and then I was hooked, and I quite liked that. And I liked that because there was Linux done well. Um, it had a reputation for being technically well put together, more resources than the single guy who put MCC together in Manchester, and open and open sourcey. Um, mm -hmm. I had picked up that the Free Software Foundation had helped getting Debian off the ground by, I think, sponsoring Ian Murdoch to get it going in, in 92 or so. And by the time I used it in 94, it was sort of there, already working, had packages and a package manager. Oh, yeah, that's exactly the modular aspect. And it had a reputation of just tackling the, tech, tackling the technical problems right and sort of do it, doing it well. And in those days, the world was so much smaller and um, uh, less complicated that it took all of an email. Hey, I'd like to help you guys. And the reply came back, yeah, you're in. And with that, I was a part of Debian. Um, <laughs> many years later, we formalized that greatly. And these days, you have to pass skill tests and this and that because mm -hmm. it's a much bigger system with many more moving, moving parts. And then in the beginning, I think I just looked after one or two small packages, some of which have by now disappeared. I think, uh, I, think I used a mirror program. There was a Perl script that you used to suck things from one um, FTP site to another, basically. That's, uh, and that was called Mirror, I and, and a couple of other things that have disappeared by now. And so what really appealed to you is that you could just dive under the hood and you could code it yourself. But like, did, did that help you with your career? I did start to work, and at that point I didn't really want to give up the open source associations because there were two things that I really started to appreciate about it. The one was that I knew that I was working with a couple of incredibly smart and gifted people from from an environment that was complementary to what I was using. So I was I was picking up skills and seeing things happening just basically earlier than I would have otherwise because that's when you're surrounded with you know smart and focused and gifted people. 
Um, and uh, I also thought it would just be a nice uh, antidote because when I started working, I started working for one of sort of Wall Street's biggest firms, uh, you know, the core of, um, you know, the very professional goal-oriented world and I thought it would be kind of neat to just keep keep a foot back over in the open source world not out of pure sort of hippie altruistic reasons I just sort of knew back then when already in the 90s that open source would um, would just come out really big I mean you never know how long it's really going to take and what it would mm -hmm. take over but the there's sort of a couple of I think fundamental aspects to it that you can't that you can't argue away that that make it that make it obvious that it will win. Uh, in in econ, a thing that we get into the heads of the first year students is basically that that everything changes till you hit an equilibrium of marginal costs equals the marginal benefit. <laughs> software is a really different beast because software and open source software has no marginal cost. Making an additional copy has no cost, uh -huh. um, which just means that. Uh, and we'd seen that when you know netbooks or, or the really cheap computers were there, um, those who were selling an operating system for a fee had to lower the revenue on those more and more and more. I mean, up to the point now that uh, Microsoft mm -hmm. is now seen as a data cloud Azure company, no longer an OS company. That you know, there's there's still I don't know a billion installations of Windows, but that's no longer that's no longer a gross market. That's not where the next thing will will come from because you can't you can't undercut a zero fee, which is why open source is everywhere. That's why open source really is on the cloud on all these AWS instances, Google Cloud mm -hmm. engine, uh, you know, in your TV, in your toaster, on your fridge. Because so a couple of years ago at Code School. Um, we created a course, we partnered up with O'Reilly to create a course on R, the R programming language. And um, so I learned a bunch of it, which I had to do along the way. And I noticed that you are a contributor to the R project, R language project. And you got, you got kind of in, into that pretty early on as well. Yep. Um, yeah, so I mean, I always wanted to use computing skills, modeling skills, number skills applied to economic and finance problems. So with that, it was always clear that some of these languages would be would be helpful. So I, I learned C relatively early on. I taught myself C++ as a grad student. Um, that was good. I did all my data analysis in C++ at the time, and then I realized that that was really not the best way to do that, because the way most people do that these days is with scripting languages. There weren't that many mm. at the time. Python was just sort of getting started. But you know, I hadn't. I, known about S via, via a stats book that had some S and C code that I looked at, couldn't quite use it. I knew of MATLAB um, and what I then started using as a grad student with Debian, which had it, was Octave. And it's all Octave. Octave. So there was a flippant saying back then in the day that um, when R was younger, and not as well known, that R is to S what Octave is to MATLAB. Octave is the brainchild of John Eaton, who I then, after I moved here in, in 2000, also met because he used to live in, in, in Madison, just, just up the road from here, two hours. And it's basically an open source interpreter that behaves a lot like MATLAB, okay. like, the, like the language. He has sort of always stressed that it wasn't just meant to be a clone, but for better or worse, people mostly sort of perceive it like that. And that's, 
that's also a really interesting story because back then when I used it for a little bit in dissertation work, we definitely used it at, at work. I, you know, I brought it to the investment bank and we put it on a machine there because I worked with a VP who had not, um, had, had only graduated uh, with, with a PhD himself a couple of years earlier and, and was already then in the, the mid-late 90s sort of predisposed to, to open source and sort of trusted that. Um, and we used that quite a bit for scripting and that were actually, I think that was the first things where I did this fusioning that I still do to this day. So I took, I took the code for Octave and took some code for two other things and I put them together and made an extension module for Octave. So one was a relatively simple one to talk to Postgres, the database, and the other one put a faster random number generator into Octave, which a couple of years later, um, Paul Kienzler, another core Octave contributor, actually put then into, into Octave itself. So those, those were little things, that, but I think those didn't quite have a, have a repo, so I think I just put those on a on a website, on my website. Or something. <laughs> yeah, those, those were the very first things. But yeah, back to YR. So, so I'd used Octave, and um, after the first job change, I needed a new computing environment, so I convinced my bosses there to buy MATLAB. Um, and I'd already gotten sort of a little bit of uh, fool's latitude to do this work on a Linux box, so I had a, I had a laptop. And then I realized that MATLAB isn't actually all that great for modeling. And I was switching basically more and more of my in-house modeling from Octave as a MATLAB variant over to R. And then, I don't know, at some point, by 2001, 2002, R had become my primary and every new problem that I tackled, I tackled with, with R scripts. It works also greatly with the with a package system, just like we have in Debian. You can take an individual module, put it in, mm -hmm. and get it out again. I mean, other languages have that too. I mean, Ruby, Python, everybody has a, has a package system. It's just some work and some don't. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and ours has a well-earned reputation of just, of just working. What do you love about it? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a passion. It's an ability to do something outside of work deadlines and just helping in really small ways sort of moving the needle forward and shaping it. I think 20 years ago, I took great satisfaction out of properly integrating small components into a larger cohesive thing, a Linux distribution. I just took pieces that I thought were useful. A lot of it at the time, stuff that I was using for work. I mean, I was still slicing data with Perl. Mm -hmm. So I was adding a couple of Perl modules to Debian. And then later, you know, it became, became R. Um, that Bates and I incorporated for quite some time and then I later took it over. I just had to look at the, the change log. I think he first mentions me in 98 and then I think by 2001 I was the R maintainer and 16 years later and I'm still the R maintainer. So. <laughs> That's awesome. So RCPP, this will, if, I, if I understand correctly, this allows you to basically go back and forth between R code and C code. It's binding, making libraries uh, access easier and that had always existed mm -hmm. because I itself is written in C, mm -hmm. but it was just a little more cumbersome than we like it these days. To make this binding to libraries happen was all possible, so people were already doing it. It was just much more work than you wanted it to be. Mm. And that's sort of the biggest deal. These days, you can basically just have a one-liner at the command line prompt, um, and which creates a function where you just, inside a string, say what your C++ code is, so obviously not for long problems, but for small demonstration problems, you know, taking 
taking a vector and summing them all up or taking the apps or the log of sort of something. And this whole marshalling of taking a vector that's represented in R, having it appear in C++ without any automatic, with any manual transformation because our framework does all that behind the scenes after mm. several iterations is a thing that's super powerful. Mm. And that's why it's now being used so widely this, and that's just, that's just mesmerizing and really, really, really humbling. It's a big deal now. It's just really widely used and enables people to just take mm -hmm. R further and faster without any headaches because that's... They just use that, the C library. Well, and, and exactly. I mean, you can just basically take... As, as I do for many things still because I enjoy the wrapping, you can just take something that's a self-contained C++ library from GitHub, mm -hmm. put some wrapping around it, and it's there. It's accessible. And, and that's, you make that's, it easy. Exactly. That's powerful. That's, that's, that's good. And that, that still works. That's great. I have a quote here I have to read you from Carl Bodiger, who works okay. on the Rocker Project. He said, Dirk's an immensely experienced and talented open source developer. For a newer or more junior person like myself, this can be intimidating at first, but Dirk has always treated me as an equal and has been both generous and has been generous with his time. I think what I'd like to thank Dirk for is how he's taught me to pace myself and the project. Basically, building new images when we have a critical mass demanding a particular feature, but not getting bogged down chasing every possible permutation some user wanted. His quiet leadership styles helped me help the project from spiraling down a lot of half-dug rabbit holes, but not miss the real opportunities. Wow, that's very kind. He's a really good guy, and he's putting me on too high a pedestal because, you know, I'm just... Here, a mere quant in a, in a financial firm <laughs> in Chicago, and he's now, a, he's now a Berkeley prof. But yes, we were both intrigued by Docker around the same time and then realized it's easier to pool resources and do something together. So Carl and I are Rocker. And because Rocker takes Docker and puts R into it, that has to do a bit with how you assemble components and stick things together. The, the mm. thing that I still do around Debian, I could show him a few tricks about how we assemble from, a, from an empty or, or base Debian image something that's a, that's a reliable container with, with R in it. And I've done some variations on it, and he's taken that uh, quite far uh, himself because he was very fond of this idea of uh, having fixed release versions available, and a lot of people like that. Too. And, um, oh, using Docker. So that's uh, yeah. Yeah, to make it accessible to get a particular version of R, R. as well. And using I, Docker. That's right. I suspect with all your involvement with open source, you might have some opinions about like uh, either how to get started on open source and how to get involved with a community, or even like some best practices on how to run an open source project. I actually think that sort of the this this war of operating systems and deployments is over. And I think we've won, even though we've lost. And by we, I mean sort of Debian, Ubuntu, that whole aspect. Um, we've never really got to the desktop. I mean, you come here with a Mac rather than with a Linux laptop. Um, um, but a lot of deployment stuff for developers now happens in the cloud, in modular systems. Mm -hmm. And because of this unbeatable zero-cost alternative, something like Travis or Jenkins most often runs on a Linux system. Renting an incremental minute of compute time at Amazon is cheaper on a Linux system than on any of the other operating systems. It's damn hard to actually get them for Mac OS. Uh, it's cheaper than Windows. And that just means that many of these deployments, particularly the ones that we don't see, are Linux mm -hmm. 
behind the back. So many people these days now work on Linux without having explicitly chosen it as their as their operating system because it's just it's just everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. And How do we get Linux onto the? Uh, yeah, you know that, that that's that's a that's a funny bit because every now and then you have these these headline grabbing things where developer X Y Z says I've had it. You know, yeah. Apple is too control freaky. I go sort of somewhere else, and then yeah. they try it, and then of course, then they come back because they get frustrated because on Linux things aren't as polished as they are on Apple because they yeah. they have some real um, advantages because they have a really narrowly defined hardware stack, so it's mm -hmm. so easy to make a cohesive product and do it well. And that's why everybody loves their product and, and their hardware. It's just they're too control freakery. I mean, this stuff, <laughs> you know, a release or two ago that, oh, all of a sudden you can't write into use a local lib anymore unless you do it on a Tuesday at moonlight or sort of something because <laughs> we can't trust you to do the right thing in your machine. It's no longer a developer environment. That was, is it, it's Ketchum Trading, Trading, which is... Uh, you know, financial company, obviously a trading company, mm -hmm. and I can look up on the wall and I see all of these uh, little theorems, what a little math, all this sort of stuff going on up here, which yep. is imagines what you guys do. So I'd be really curious if you can give us an example of how you've taken a problem, a trading problem, and picked out, I'll take this tool here and this tool here to do a transformation, <coughs> maybe with a little C++ or a little bit of R, to come out with a with a number that allows us to make a decision. We send a lot of data around, and that's multicast, and then some display things just pick up data from multicast and display the current value. Now, I'm a regression and time series guy. When I see a value, of course, I want to know, well, where was it half an hour ago? So we didn't have that, because all the multicast data was just circling around. The current value is displayed, and the rest falls out of the exhaust. The exhaust, famous open source business model uh, talk token thing. So all I then realized was that I just needed to get some quality time with one of the developers together so that he could show me through the bare bones fragment that I needed to subscribe to the multicast and then stick it. And then I took the data and just stuck it into Redis. And I just used Redis as a cache for a couple of hours, a couple of days. And then all of a sudden, we had Redis. Everybody loves Redis. It's a fantastic, simple to use write in, read out many times, or maybe read many times, uh, write many times, read, read out a few, but it's, 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 it's easy to, to do. And then I just have that as a data store. And one of those things that we haven't touched upon <coughs> gets us back to, um, to our studio. One of those things that really gave our legs over the couple of years, one, one sort of killer product is Shiny. I'm not sure if you've seen that. That's a nice integration that makes it possible to write really polished um, apps in the browser with no um, with no need to manually deal with the frameworking that's basically provided. Not not too dissimilar to what RCBB does behind the scenes, so that you can just write a simple line and connect it to something, and it just works. So Shiny took up some ideas from reactive programming, and you just basically put a UI component and a backend component together in a few lines of of R code, ten and ten lines, and then you just play it. So I just hooked up a few lines to select certain series, prices or risk attributes or whatever we wanted to graph, and then needed a few lines of R to go to Redis and fetch the data and stick it into an R plotting routine, and uh, voila, there you were. And then you can play other games that you know, put a timer in so that it auto-refreshes every five seconds, sort of things like that. And RCPP comes back into the picture because the base connection to Redis 
uh, wasn't quite performant enough for the particular thing that I was doing, or or maybe because how I was accessing it, you know, there may have been just a a massive ASCII to floating conversion in there, or sort of a low hanging fruit. It was just easy to make it faster with a bit of C plus plus, or so we did. So then there's an RSVP Redis connector with not 100% coverage, but enough of the functions that we needed for that, and with that we had a little graphing tool, and that's basically still on every colleague's desktop. So it's sort of the little things. Nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a nice combination that we have here, because they know that I spend time on open source, but then they also see that it, you know, that I can make recourse to a couple of smart people, or introduce us to other people, or solve some problems easily with open source, because I know how to. So it's, uh, it's good. And then they don't mind that the thing that has exactly zero content with anything that we do that's our intellectual property because it's just a piece of plumbing to go from an R process to Redis and marshal data back and forth. So I uploaded that as a sort of a small package that just does that. And that's one of those stories where doing that is, is the right thing because I've gotten, I think, three or four key contributors back to that. They kind of just said, oh, yeah, this is great, but it's missing this, that, and the other. Here, have edit. I just wrote it for you. And that way the, nice. the pie keeps growing. It's good when it works that way. And it, it, by and large, it works now because R has sort of enough of a critical mass that, that things uh, still, still, still happen. There's enough people looking at it that they kind of say, oh, there's something missing here. Let me just turn that knob and, and edit. And that worked with Redis. Great. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Thank you, Dirk, for being on the show. Um, it's been fascinating. Thanks for having me.